The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. If you would, please open up to Romans chapter 8. It is page 944 in the Red Bible, page 1123 in the Large Print Blue Bible, and page 1128 in the Children's Bible. I have to confess I cheated. Uh, before, before this, I was standing out by a uh, heater vent in the back, and it felt wonderful. So, uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 39. This is God's Word. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him Graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor heights nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us. From the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, it is hard to imagine that there are more wonderful words in all of Scripture than what we read here in today's passage. And so, God, I pray that you would help us not just to understand these things in our head but deep in our heart and in our soul. Convince us of these glorious truths this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As many of you know, I have a love for music, and music has a love for me. Um, My wife just told me that my Thank You Chad video had 800 views or something like that, I'm sure because the music was fantastic. Um, But one of the reasons why I love music so much is because music has a way of expressing our deepest desires. Uh, In 2012, there was a song by Jason Mars, and it was entitled, I Won't Give Up. And while uh, it is far from theologically perfect, I do think it communicates the longings of a human heart. The song starts by saying, when I look into your eyes, It's like watching the night sky or a beautiful sunrise. And then the pre-chorus says, I won't give up on us. 
Even if the skies get rough, I'm giving you all my love. I think this song communicates what all of us long for. All of us long for someone to cherish us. All of us long for someone who will know everything about us and still unconditionally love us and never give up for us forever and for always. This is one reason why divorce is so painful because the hopes and desires and longing of our heart are shattered. You know, no matter how stoic a person is, If all of us are honest, we can all admit that we long to be objects of unconditional, unrelenting, and unstoppable love. Usually we search for this in romantic relationships or in family relationships, and yet they always come up short because no matter how good of a husband you have or a wife you have or parents you have or children you have, their love is never completely unconditional. This is something great and wonderful to aspire to, But it is never unconditional. Let me use myself as an example. I love my wife. I love my kids more than anyone that I have ever loved in my life, any other person. And yet I know that I fail frequently to love them unconditionally. Many times my disposition towards them, my attitude towards them is not one of love, but one of frustration or anger and not righteous anger because a lot of times my love is contingent either on their behavior or whatever attitude or mood I am in. Do you know what I'm saying? And so every week when Pastor Jonathan and I get together for accountability, I have have these questions that I told him to ask me every week. And so one question is, how are you doing at mirroring your heavenly father to your children? Think of that. How are you doing at mirroring God's fatherly love to your children? The other question is, how are you doing at mirroring the love of your Savior to your wife? And the reason why I have Jonathan ask me these questions isn't because I do it perfectly, but because I do it very imperfectly. At the very best, my response to these questions are, pretty good, you know. I did pretty good this week, loving my kids like their heavenly father, loving my wife like Christ loves her. And the reason I can give that as my best answer is because I don't love unconditionally, even though I would love to do so. Unconditional, unrelenting, unstoppable love is what every person longs for from birth, even our children. And because I am keenly aware that I am unable to give that to my children as much as I want to, I try to remind them that God loves them in that way. Even as little kids, I would, I would sing to them before they went to bed, be, before they could really understand as we were reading the Bible to them. And I would sing to them a song that many of you know. I would sing to them, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, we are weak but he is strong. I sang this song to them because I know that only God can provide the unconditional, unrelenting, unstoppable love that their hearts were created to long for. Now in today's passage, Paul is writing to Christians in Rome. Christians that are going through difficult times and suffering. Christians who do not know it yet, but will undergo some of the worst persecution in the history of the church under the Roman Caesar Nero. And because of their current suffering and the suffering suffering to come, they are questioning God's love towards them. The Romans sing a song like this. Jesus loves me, I don't know, even though he told me so. 
life is hard and at times unfair. We are suffering. Is he here? Does Jesus love me? Does Jesus love me? Does Jesus love me? I know he tells me so. You know, if we were all honest, I think we could admit that we have sung a similar song. When we are suffering, when we are lonely, or maybe when life doesn't go the way that we had thought, we wonder, where is God? Is God for me in this? Does God love me in this? What has happened to God? And so here in today's passage, God is speaking to you if you are in the midst of suffering, if you are in the midst of pain, if you are in the midst of trial and you are a child of God and you are wondering, where is God in all of this? Does God really love me? In this passage, I want to break it down basically into two parts. If you look at, at verse 31 at the end, I think it's a great summary of this passage. It says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And so I simply want to look at those two questions. The first question is, is God for us? Is God really for you? Is he for you in every and all circumstances? Does he really love you unconditionally? Does God really cherish you? Is it really true? And then the second question is, who can be against us? That is, who can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? So first, the first question that I want to look at here is this, if God is for us. Now, when Paul says, if God is for us, it's a concluding statement. It's a climax of the truths that he has spoken just beforehand. And so we'll look at verses 28 through 30 to see that not only is God for us, but we'll also see the expanse of God's for usness. He says, uh, we start uh, with verse 28, which many of you know is one of the most memorized, the most uh, uh, used verses in Scripture. Verse 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, I know this may seem like a silly question, but when he says all things, what does that include? All things, right? So let me give you a quiz. Does all things include big things? All right. 25% of you got that one right. Good. Does all things include small things? Better. Does all things include happy things? Does all things include sad things? Does all things include good things? All right, now listen closely to this one. Does all things include evil things? Okay. It is so important that when we read verse 28, that we understand that God is not calling all things good. In Isaiah 5, God says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Death is not good. Sexual assault is not good. Bowling is not good. Terrorism is not good. Sin is not good. Mass shootings are not good. And we should weep and grieve and we should call these things evil. You see, what Romans 8.28 promises us is not that everything is good, but that God will take all things, good things and bad things, wonderful things and evil things. God will take all those things and he will turn them into good. Many of you, most of you are probably familiar with the fairy tale Rumpelstiltskin. In the fairy tale, the the miller uh, kind of exaggerates or, or tells a little bit of a lie to the king that his daughter is able to spin straw into gold. 
And so the king takes the daughter and locks her in a room in the, in the palace with a bunch of straw and a spinning wheel. And he says, okay, I want you to spin all of this into gold before tomorrow morning. And if you don't, off with your head. And so she is in utter despair when all of a sudden, at the last minute, this imp-like creature appears and spins all of the straw into gold. See, what we're told in this passage is that God's agenda for the Christian is not to spin straw into gold, but for the Christian, God promises that he will take all things in our life and turn them into something for good, for the good of his purposes. This is the promise of God. And while it seems too good to be true, it is not a fairy tale. God promises that everything in your life, all things, if you are his child, the big things, the small things, the things that you don't even think about, all things God will work together for good. If God defaults on this promise just one time, his reputation is ruined. God promises all things in your life, even evil things, he will use for good. Now I know that this is hard to imagine. Many of you have been through certain situations in your life that are just absolutely horrific. And you wonder, how could it be that God could turn this into something good? And if that is the question in your mind, I just want to encourage you to look to the cross, where the most wicked act in human history, in which the creation put to death its creator, was transformed by God into one of the goodest things in human history, the salvation of our souls. God is so powerful that he can take all things and work them for your good. And so do you see the extent of God's for usness? It covers all things. Not only that, as we read on, we see the good that God brings from these things. Verse 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, not our purpose, but his purpose, for those whom he foreknew or foreloved, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. I don't want us to get sidetracked today necessarily on on foreknowledge and predestination. We'll cover that a lot more uh, in Romans chapter 9. But I want you to see the good God is making of all things. Scripture tells us that God is is not the author of evil, but God is so powerful that he takes every situation and turns it for good. And he turns it for good for this purpose, not not exclusively, but this is one of the purposes that, that is God's good, to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ, to make us like Jesus. Like verse 29 says, to be conformed to the image of his Son. I don't know if you remember the movie Karate Kid, but in the movie Karate Kid, uh, Daniel's son wants to become a karate uh, champion, and so he goes to Mr. Miyagi and says, I want to become a karate champion. Will you teach me? And so what does Mr. Miyagi say? He says, yes, paint my fence. And Daniel's son's like, what? And so he's painting the fence, right, the wrong way. And, and so Mr. Miyagi says, no, no, paint it like this. And then Daniel gets done, and he comes back and says, I'm done. And Mr. Miyagi says, with the whole fence? And then he looks, and the fence goes all the way around the yard. And so he paints the whole fence, and then he comes back the next day a little bit frustrated, but says, okay, now I'm ready to learn karate. He goes, all right, walk, wax my car, right? Clean my car. And so he waxes on and waxes off, and, and Mr. Miyagi teaches him how to do that. And so Daniel comes back the third day, and he's extremely frustrated. He's like, listen, I've been slaving for you. I've been doing all of these chores, but I want to learn karate. 
And so Mr. Miyagi throws a punch, and he waxes on, and he waxes off, and he, and he defends it, right? See, all of these, these seemingly mundane things, all of these, these tasks, all these, these chores, these, these sufferings of, of Danielson was for a purpose, to conform him to the image of a karate champion, right? And what we are learning here is that we may not understand everything and how it all adds up in our life, but we are told that God is using all things for good, and one of those good things that God is using them for is to conform us, not to a karate champion, but something far greater, into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, God's purposes to conform us into the image of Christ is, is not the only glorious thing we see here. We also read in verse 30, it says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Again, I'm not going to get into detail about all of these different uh, items here today. But what I want to make sure that we are understanding is the expense of the expanse of God's for usness in accomplishing our salvation. How is God for us? Well, God foreknew us. That is, He for loved us before we ever loved Him. That God predestined us, not only onto salvation, but also to sanctification, that is becoming like Jesus. That God called us, he wooed us to himself, that God justified us, he declared us righteous and gave us the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. And that God glorifies us, as we talked about last week, giving us glorified bodies in heaven to enjoy the glory of God. And so do you see the expanse of God's for usness? Can you see how it covers anything and everything, both in life and in your salvation. God is for us. This is the expanse of God's for usness. But then Paul goes on to talk about the extent of God's for usness, or the depth of God's for usness. Verse 31, he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, let me pause there for a second. Let me ask you, how can you know how much a person is for you, okay? How can you know how much for usness someone has for you? Well, I would, I would argue that one way you know that is by what they are willing to sacrifice on your behalf. For example, let's say you're out of a job, you fall on hard times, and I decide to take you out and I buy you dinner. And you'll think, oh, wow, Pastor Dan is for me, right? He's for me. Well, let's say goes beyond that. Find out you're having trouble paying your, your mortgage. And so I talked to Trish and we pray about it. And we're like, you know what? We want to pay your mortgage this month. You're going to say, wow, Pastor Dan, is, he's really, really for me, right? Does that make sense? Well, let's, let's go a little bit further. Let's say, you know, it's, it's kind of perpetual. You've been out of a job for a year. And so Trish and I, we think about it. We pray about it. And we like, you know what? You can have our house. We'll move into the homeless shelter, okay? You'll be like, Wow, Pastor Dan is really, really, really for us. And then you'd probably be saying, he might need some help, right? This isn't healthy. You see, to the degree someone is willing to sacrifice for you is the degree to which you know they are for you. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? It's important for that to make sense to us because of the verse we are about to read. How do we know how much God is for us? How do we know the extent of God's for usness? Does he buy us lunch? Does he buy us groceries? Does he give us a house? Verse 32, this is how for us God is. 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. What is the extent of God's for usness? He gave that which was most precious to him. God is so for you that he sacrificed his one and only son, Jesus Christ. That is the extent of God's for usness. And so Paul concludes saying this How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul is saying that if in the midst of suffering you question whether or not God is for you, again, Look to the cross. If he is going to give you his one and only son, will he not care for you in the, in the small details of life, in the midst of your suffering? This would be like if I, if I gave you my house, but I said, you can't have the toothpicks, right? The toothpicks are mine. You can have the entire house. It doesn't make sense. If God is going to give you his one and only son, that which is most precious to him, how can we doubt that God is for us in every situation in our life? even in the midst of suffering. And so we see the expanse or width of God's for usness is in all things, in saving things, and the extent or the depth of God's for usness is demonstrated by the sacrifice of his only son, Jesus Christ. Now Paul continues at the end of verse 35. He says, if God is for us, which he's just shared with us in these marvelous truths, Who can be against us? Now, what does Paul mean by who can be against us? Is Paul saying that no one can oppose us? Well, I don't think that's what Paul is saying. If you know anything about the ministry of Jesus, he was opposed constantly. If you know anything about the ministry of Paul, he was opposed constantly. Often he was beaten. He was kicked outside of the city. He was left for dead. He was beaten within a lash of his life many different times. And so I don't think Paul is saying that no one can oppose us. But what Paul is saying is, is what we read here in this context of this, of this passage. You see, I think we can understand this question and how he conveys it in different ways. In verse 35, he asks the question in this way, kind of a different trajectory. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then later in verse 39, he talks about a separating from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so when Paul asks, who can be against us? What Paul is asking is this, and I believe it's on the screen. Who or what can victoriously separate us from the love of Christ? Who or what can victoriously separate us from the love of Christ? And then Paul pulls out three categories, three things that do oppose us and says, can this which opposes us separate us? Can this which opposes us separate us? Can this which opposes us separate us? And so let's look at those. First, can our sin separate us from the love of Christ? Can we sin to such an extent that we can lose the love of Christ? Verse 33, who shall bring charge against, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Shall Satan bring accusations and charges against you? Shall others who have have experienced the pain of your sin bring charges against you? Shall our record or guilty conscience bring charge against you? Well, they may try to, but they will get thrown out of the courtroom. Why? Because the verse ends here. It is God who justifies. Our accusers cannot make any of the accusations stick because the judge 
to whom they give those accusations to, has already declared us justified, righteous in Christ. And he has not only declared our justification, but Paul says here that he has actually accomplished our justification. It is God who justifies. Verse 34, he continues and says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The scriptures tells us that Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And the question is, will Jesus change his mind on us? Will he come and will he see all of our shame and say, you know what? I changed my mind. I'm now going to condemn you. Will Jesus rethink his love for us? And Paul gives an emphatic no by reminding us of how much Jesus has and is for us. Jesus is so for us that he died for us. Jesus is so for us that he was raised for us. Jesus is so for us that he is ruling at the right hand of the Father on our behalf. Jesus is so for us that right now at this very moment, he is interceding for us. In all these ways, Jesus is for us. And if Jesus is so for us in all of these ways, then we can be assured that when he comes again to judge the living and the dead, he will not be against us. He will not condemn us because he is for us in all things. We can have this great confidence that our sin will not separate us from the love of Christ because God the Father has justified you. God the Son has died and risen and now intercedes for you. And we learn elsewhere in Scripture that God the Spirit has sealed you for the day of redemption. So our sin cannot separate us from the love of Christ. What about our suffering? Can our suffering separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 35 Paul continues, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 36 is probably in italics in your Bible because Paul is quoting Psalm 44. And in Psalm 44, the people of God are crying out to God because they are being slaughtered by their enemies. Now, what is so interesting about this psalm is they're being slaughtered by their enemies, not because they've been unfaithful to God, but because they are faithful to God. It says that they give thanks to God, that they, that they bless God, that they follow God, that they obey God, they are faithful to God, and yet in their faithfulness, they are being slaughtered. And so the question is, if we are being persecuted, if we are suffering, is it because we are unfaithful? And Paul says, not necessarily. It may be because you are being faithful that you are enduring suffering. And so Paul quotes Psalm 44, knowing this is a common experience, that when we suffer, we are, we are prone to question whether God is still for us. We are questioning, as they did in Psalm 44, if God has rejected us or turned his back on us. But verse 37 assures us that in the midst of suffering, that not only has God not abandoned us, but it says in verse 37 that in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. How is it that we are more than conquerors in the midst of suffering? Well, as we already noted earlier in this passage in Romans 8:28, we are more than conquerors because not only does suffering not destroy us, but that God will actually use it for his good and to conform us into the image of Christ. And so we are not only conquerors, but we are more than conquerors because it is used for good. 
You know, I've heard many people say, after they've come through a season of suffering, you know, I would never want to suffer that again, but I would not trade it for the world because of what God has done in me through that suffering. We are more than conquerors because God uses our suffering for good. But the other reason, according to Romans 8, verse 18 through 30, which we studied last week, that we are more than conquerors is because upon our death, we enter glory with glorified bodies so we can enjoy the glory of God. Paul says in Philippians 1, he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. My desire is to depart. That's code language for die. My, my, my desire is to die and be with Christ. And then he says this, I love this part. For that is far better. That's far better. You know what is far better than living? Dying. And being with Jesus, that is far better. The psalmist puts it this way. He says, for a day in your courts, O God, is better than a thousand days elsewhere. So one day in heaven is better than a thousand days at Disneyland. One day in heaven is better than a thousand days at the beach. One day in heaven is better than a thousand days golfing. One one day in heaven is better than a thousand days anywhere else. And so to die is gain. It's better by far. So we are more than conquerors, whether we suffer or whether we are persecuted to the point of death. Because they can take our life, but that just leads us to glory. And so how can Paul say, if God is for us, who can be against us? Our sin will not separate us from the love of Christ. Our suffering will not separate us from the love of Christ. And finally, our situation will not separate us from the love of Christ. In verse 38 and 39, Paul kind of concludes this statement with, with of this overarching question of, if God is for us, who can be against us? What shall separate us from the love of Christ? And in verse 38 through 39, it's great because Paul kind of abandons all specifics and just gets very general and speaks of the extremes, kind of the, the bookends of, of all situations of life, to know that it covers all things. He says in verse 38, For I am sure, absolutely certain, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is emphasizing the absolute security of the love of God for us in Christ. In the midst of the good life, in the midst of the shadow of death, whether we face angels or demons, whether we are feeling far from God or near to God, we are secure because God who is for us has power over all of these things. I mean, think about this. Think about how amazing God is. Death is the great separator. And yet God has made death into something that draws us closer to him than we could ever be on this earth. Or, or if you look even at the word the devil, the word diabolos means separator. And at the cross, Satan's plan was to separate us from God. And yet God transforms it to draw us closer to him by paying for our sin and welcoming us into his family. And so who or what can separate us from the love of Christ? Our sin can't, our suffering can't, our situation can't. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And Paul says to this, I am sure. Now why is it that Paul can be so certain? Why can Paul be so certain that nothing will separate us 
from God's love in Jesus Christ. And the reason is because it's not up to you and it's not up to me. Paul can be certain because it is up to God who is far more powerful. I've been trying to think of a way to illustrate this for the past couple of days. This is what I came up with on my drive to church today. All right, let's pretend. Let's pretend I'm a mechanic, okay? I'm a singer, I'm a preacher, I'm a mechanic, all right? So let's pretend I'm a mechanic, all right? It's my first day on the job, and I'm in the mechanic shop, and some guy pulls in his car, and the mechanic shop owner says, hey, can you go lift up that guy's car to fix the thingamajiggy underneath? And I'm like, sure. And so I walk over to the car, and I grab the bumper, and I start hmm, trying to lift it up, right? And, and the, the, the shop owner kind of looks over at me, giggles, and he says, no, 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 use the lift, like, just hit the button, and it will lift it up. Went, oh, okay. And you hit the button, and it lifts up, all right? How does this connect? All right, let's try this. If I am confident in my power, I have every reason to doubt the security of my salvation because I am powerless to keep it secure. But my salvation is not up to my power. It is up to the power of another. If you are struggling with the assurance of your salvation, it's because you're looking to the wrong person. It's because you're looking to yourself or because you're looking to your circumstance or you're looking at your sin. But God says, if you want to be assured of your salvation, don't look at any of those things. Look to God. If you look in this passage, you'll see how active God is, that it is God who foreknew. It is God who predestined. It is God who has justified. It is God who will glorify. It was God who did not spare his own son. It is God who loves us. It is God, it is God, it is God. We can be secure in our salvation because it is not up to us. I know so many times we want to have control of these things. We don't want control of these things. We don't have the power to sustain them. We can be secure in our salvation because it is not up to us. It is up to God. Let me end with this. Karl Barth was born May 10th 1886, and he was a Swiss theologian and one of the most influential Christian thinkers of the 20th century, 19th century, I guess it would be, 19th and 20th. But anyways, uh, Karl Barth started off as a pastor, and he turned into more of an academic guy, and uh, he, he kind of summarized all his theological understandings in this magnum opus thing called the Church Dogmatics, which had 13 volumes. Uh, it was published in 1932. Uh, it had over 6 million words in, in these 13 volumes. And so on one occasion, a reporter comes to Karl Barth, and he asks him to give a summary of the totality of his theology in these massive 12 volumes of church dogmatics. And if you know anything about Karl Barth, he kind of went off the tracks in some ways, but I think he nails this right on. In summarizing all of his theology, in summarizing all of what Scripture says, Karl Barth replies to the reporter in this way, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Friends, do you believe that today? Not just for your children, but for you. That Jesus cherishes you. That Jesus delights in you. That Jesus rejoices in you. Jesus does not just put up with you. Jesus does not just care about you. Jesus does not just want you to obey him. Jesus loves you. And nothing 
can stop you from being the object of his unconditional, unrelenting, and unstoppable love. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word, of your unstoppable love. We thank you that it's not up to us to, to hold up our salvation because we do not have the power to do so, but it, that you are the author and the perfecter of our faith, that you will be the one to, to make us like Jesus. You are the one that will glorify us in heaven. Let us live in accordance with the good news of your great and unconditional love for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.